O God, our Father, we rejoice that it is our privilege as well as our responsibility to share in the work of thy kingdom with what thou hast entrusted for our own personal use. Therefore, we bring back a part of our material possessions. We place them in the collection plate here, and we pray for the Holy Spirit to superintend their use to the end that they may bring honor to the name of Christ and good to many people. And now we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts may be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Those who know me only slightly are aware of the fact that I'm often very unorganized and I'm frequently late trying to get where I'm going. Now, that's just the nature of the beast, and that's the way I am, and I'm sorry, but I try. Uh, not long ago, I had the privilege of being the preacher for two Presbyterials. Now, to those of you who are listening on the radio, a Presbyterial is a body of Presbyterian women, and it's a rather formidable audience for any preacher to address. And uh, last year, I had the privilege, however, of speaking to two such Presbyterials, and both of them met in Bristol, Tennessee, and in Bristol, Virginia. As you can tell, those towns are right together. Because I do not always relish the conversation that goes on before such meetings, especially when I'm the only man and there are 100 or 150 women there, I purposely waited till I was about 10 minutes before time to go on to get there. And when I arrived at the church where I was to speak in Bristol, Tennessee, Bristol, Virginia, I uh, noticed that there weren't very many cars parked outside. And since people come from a large uh, area to attend these meetings, there's usually cars every place because most of the churches are old. And they don't have a parking lot and they park all up and down the street. Well, I knew something was wrong, but I got out of the car, locked it up and raced inside the church to wait for a time to preach, but I found out I was at the wrong church. And then I raced more rapidly back outside to get in my car and go to the right church. And then, would you believe it, I looked inside the car windows and there dangling in the ignition lock were my keys. And then those usual panicky thoughts went through my mind, which is better to break one of these big windows or this little bitty window Someone told me that the big one cost less than the little one, but don't do it till you check it out with someone. And then I tried to figure if I could get a coat hanger from some place in the church and break some of the insulation on the side of the car and somehow finagle the, the door open. And uh, it was sort of humiliating to think about going back in that church to the church secretary that just told me I was at the wrong church and tell her I'd lock myself out. Uh, women liberation front would have worked on me at that point. And uh, so I, I, I stood there thinking, what on earth am I going to do? I'm really going to be late now. And I ran my hand down in my overcoat pocket, and there was a spare key. And what had happened was that I'd taken uh, my wife's to the car that she normally uses, and her key was in it. And I had my own keys in my pocket. Now then, just about everyone who goes around to church meetings today is convinced of the fact that the church is just split up 
in so many different segments that it is often very discouraging to hear any sort of united call for Christ. This is not only true of the Protestant church, but of the Roman Catholic church as well. There are great divisions, and there is a hardening of the categories that has taken place. The church has always been looked upon from the time that Jesus spoke to these earliest Christians as possessing the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the keys of the kingdom. But somehow we've lost our keys, it seems like, and we are confused and frustrated. And I wonder if the keys are not closer at hand than we really realize, and that if we just reach in our pockets where the Bible is, if we couldn't find those keys once again. I have seen the divisions that exist in three ways. There are people who say that the answer to the problems that exist today is the very simple proclamation of the gospel. Preach, preach, preach. Just preach the simple truth of the gospel, and all of man's social ills will be cured. Now, there's room to question this. We are to preach the gospel, and I'm going to strongly assert this in just a moment. Then there are another group of people who decry proclamation and say what we need is really presence. All you have to do is go out there and get in amongst them and somehow by osmosis or by your presence and showing what a good Christian you are, you will affect people by your behavior and thereby transform society. And thirdly, there are the people who speak often about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and his great power and how he could transform the church today often through charismatic gifts. Now, if you go back, as I suggested a moment ago, back to the search for the keys, and by the way, the Roman Catholic Church for years and years has and still has as its symbol the papal crown with the keys of the kingdom. And it's based partially upon these words from the 20th chapter of John and also from the 16th chapter of Matthew, I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And if you open the door of heaven, people will go in. If you close the door, they'll be shut out. Martin Luther and the reformers and most of Protestant Christianity accepts these, uh, reinterprets these keys to mean the proclamation of the word of God. That by the churches preaching and proclaiming the word of God, we open the doors of heaven. And by our failure to do it or our failure to bring people under it, we can close that door. He's given us the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And first of all is proclamation. Now then, let me say that one reason that the church does not get a more serious hearing by a great many people today is that many people in the pews simply do not believe that the man in the pulpit believes what he's saying. And some of the people in the pulpit have watered down the gospel of Jesus Christ and have tried to accommodate a great many people uh, by doing away with miraculous elements in the gospel and with those unique and distinctive features of Christianity which they felt might be offensive to some people. Louis Cassells is a religion writer for United Press International, and he strongly questions those who say that you must jettison about 90% of the historic Christian faith in order to reach what he calls modern man. Let me read you some words of Louis Cassells. He says, in my quest for the prototype of modern man, I have met and talked to a good many individual modern men. I have even listened to some of them, 
And what I hear these modern men saying is that they are sick and tired of being told by the clergy what they can't believe. They want to know what, if anything, they can believe. And most of them are not particularly interested in the denatured Christianity which is being offered to them as a concession to their supposed modernity of mind. They figure that if the church is just a human institution for social service, if the Bible is so unreliable that you can't take any part of it very seriously, if the Christian faith is based upon a gigantic hoax about a man rising from the dead, then there is no use trying to modernize all this mess. Just throw it all out and be done with it. End of quote. I think Louis Cassells has put his finger on it. There was a time in which the church prided itself in what it believed, and the confession of faith meant what it said, and you were attracted and compelled to listen and to hear people who rang with a certain voice the truth of the Christian message. But that day seems to have been blunted by our desire to be with it and to be relevant, and as a result of it, we have watered down proclamation. And so no wonder some people wonder about it and are afraid of it. If you had lived in the earliest times of the Christian church, you would have heard them reaffirming again and again the basic historic facts of the Christian message. If a reporter had walked up on one of the earliest Christians preaching, he would have jotted down some notes like this on the message. The prophecies are fulfilled. The new age has dawned. The Messiah born of David's seed has appeared. He is Jesus of Nazareth, God's servant, who went about doing good and healing by God's power, who was crucified according to God's purpose, was raised from the dead on the third day, is now exalted to God's right hand. He will come again in glory for judgment. Therefore, let all repent and believe and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was the message of the earliest Christian, and it run, runs all the way through the book of Acts and the Gospels and all the way through the letters that you read in the New Testament. And whenever the church cuts itself away from the concrete facts behind our faith, then we have nothing to offer to anyone, but we are simply floating about on a sea of doubts. And if you're in doubt, then you can't speak with any certainty. It deadens your voice and it muffles the sound of the trumpet. The first key, then, is the proclamation of the historical Christian message like it is. You remember that I read to you a moment ago how Jesus, when he appeared, showed to these frustrated, broken-hearted disciples that that cross upon which their hopes had been batter, sh shattered and dashed to pieces that that cross had turned out, instead of being a gigantic question mark, to be a great exclamation point, showing that God is for man and that God indeed has brought a way by which man's sins might be forgiven. He spent his time in talking with those two on that road to Emmaus. To read once more the prophets, to read even in the Psalms, and see there the testimony of the scriptures toward him, the Messiah, and that it was necessary for him to die in this way in order to bring forgiveness for our sins. That message simply must be proclaimed. 
Any psychiatrist will tell you that his hospital is loaded with people who are full of guilt. You never have to say anything to make a man feel guilty in a psychiatric hospital. They all feel guilty, every last one of them. And that's often one reason that they are sick. And the Christian message has an answer to guilt, and that answer is grace, the grace of God, which is shown for us in that cross. When Jesus suddenly appeared in that upper room with that terrified group of his own disciples who were so slow of heart to believe, he said, first of all, to them, peace. And the peace of which he spoke was the peace that God brings to a guilt-ridden mind and heart, the assurance of sins forgiven. And then it is significant that he showed them his hands and he showed them his side. Now, why would he do that? Why would he show them his hands? And why would he show them his side? He showed them his hands for the same reason that we have the Lord's Supper, to show us the reality of the atonement. That's what he showed them his hands for. He wanted them to see that here, here in the nail prints of his hand, was proof of God's love and God's remedy for sin. We need to proclaim that message once again. I remember as a boy going to a great missions conference and hearing Dr. William M. Elliott, the distinguished pastor of the Highland Park Church in Dallas, the largest Presbyterian church in our denomination. He spoke with great fervor and power on the call of missions, and I felt God tugging at my heart to go into the Christian ministry. Now, I remember Dr. Elliott closing with a poem when he spoke of the the proclamation of the gospel. I know a soul that is steeped in sin, that no man's art can cure, but I know a name, a name, a name that can make that soul all pure. I know a life that is lost to God, bound down by things of the earth, but I know a name, a name, a name that can bring that soul new birth. I know of lands that are sunk in shame, of hearts that faint and tire, but I know a name, a name, a name that can set those lands on fire. Its sound is a bland, its letters flame like glowing tongues of fire. I know a name, a name, a name that will set those lands on fire. It's significant that whenever we reaffirm our trust in the risen, redeeming Christ, that this Jesus appeals to people, and there are those who come to him and dedicate their lives to him. There, are, are, there exists that group in our church and in other churches who insist on what is called the theology of presence that we ought to be showing to other people by getting out amongst them our faith in Jesus Christ. And I agree, this is a key to the proclamation of the gospel. Get out there with them. You simply have to in order to reach them. I agree 100% with that but not to the exclusion of proclamation. They both go together. A bird flies with two wings. If one of his wings is broken, he cannot fly. Any person who comes to you and says, I believe in a personal salvation gospel, but I don't believe in the social gospel, or any person who says, I believe in the social gospel, but I don't believe in a personal salvation gospel, has broken one of his wings, and that won't fly. That won't work. The gospel has two wings, and both of them have to be there. The proclamation of a risen, redeeming Lord who saves men from their sins, and the proclamation 
of one who says, as the Father sent me. That's what Jesus said. As the Father sent me, as he laid aside his glory and became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh and walked amongst us, as he allowed himself to be misunderstood and mistreated, as he talked with beggars, leprous beggars and prostitutes at a well, and hypocritical Pharisees in the temple, as he went up and down the streets taking little children unto himself and blessing them. As the Father hath sent me, so send I you. We are to go in the same way in which he went. That's the theology of presence, and there's no need to divorce it from proclamation. The two of them go together. I was the other night at a great meeting in one of the fine churches of our assembly, the First Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Walter R. Courtney was speaking to a group of his elders and his deacons, and I'll never forget a phrase that he used. As long as I live, I'll never forget this. It's great. He said, men, what we've got to do is put the book of Romans and the book of James together. One stresses faith and one stresses work and we need them both together, inseparable. And Dr. Courtney was exactly correct. We need Romans, and we need James, and any less is not the true gospel. It's not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and, presence, certainly. We have to be there with them. You know, I have finally developed a saying that I have back in my office. You know what it is? You can't beat your head against a door that's open. Now think about that. You can't beat your head against a door that's open. If you'll take young people where they are, how they are, no matter if they've got long hair or short hair, no matter how their apparel might seem, no matter whether they're black or white, if they can't, they can't beat their head against a door that's open. And if you'll take them like they are, then you can effectively relate to them the basics of the Christian message. That's the theology of presence. It's being out there and showing our faith and what we believe by the way in which we are willing to love other people and communicate that faith through that love. Well, Jesus went on to breathe upon them and say, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. And indeed, without the great power of the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing in the church. Someone has facetiously said that if the Holy Spirit should be withdrawn, from the church, a great deal of its work would keep on going as though nothing had really happened because so little of it is often inspired by the Holy Spirit. And whoever said that I think is correct. But we need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Spirit speaks to us making the presence of Jesus real and vibrant and personal. The Holy Spirit speaks to us and bringing forth out of our lives those fruits of the Spirit which demonstrate incontrovertibly to the world outside that we belong to Jesus Christ. Yes, one of the keys to our problem today is indeed the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathed on them, and they received the power of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite playwrights, one of my favorite authors is... T.S. Eliot. This little book of his is called Murder in the Cathedral. It's a remarkable play, 
It's the story of a man back in 1170 whose name was Thomas Becket. Thomas Becket had been banished into exile because he refused to knuckle under to King Henry II. After seven years of exile, he makes his way back to his position at Canterbury Cathedral and is warmly welcomed and received by the parishioners who loved him and the clergy who served with him. But after he had been there for a while, after even his first sermon, it became apparent to many that he had not compromised his integrity and that he would not knuckle under to King Henry II. And word began to drift back to the king that Thomas a Becket really hadn't changed, that he was just as pig-headed and obstinate as he had ever been. And so four knights came to Canterbury Cathedral to murder Thomas a Becket. They came and they began to beat on the door of the cathedral, demanding that they be allowed to come in. The priests in the cathedral who loved Thomas a Becket, the great archbishop, did not want him to be killed by these murderous assassins. And they kept saying to Thomas, don't open the door, but bar it. And Thomas, in one of the most dramatic passages in this great play, says to these men, when, they, uh, when he insists on the door being open, he says to his own priest, you think me reckless, desperate, and mad, but you argue by results, as this world does, to settle if an act be good or bad. You defer to the fact for every life and every act, consequence of good and evil can be shown. And as in time, results of many deeds are blended, so good and evil in the end become confounded. It is not in time that my death shall be known. It is out of time that my decision is taken, if you call that decision, to which my whole being gives its entire consent. I give my life to the law of God above the law of man. Unbar the door, unbar the door. We are not here to triumph by fighting, by stratagem, or by resistance. Not to fight with beasts as men. We have fought the beast and have conquered. We have only to conquer now by suffering. This is the easier victory. Now is the triumph of the cross. Now open the door. I command it. Open the door. Now that's what these earliest Christians huddled in that upper room, were commanded by Jesus to do. They had locked the doors, bolted and barred them for fear of the Jews, and the living Christ came in their presence. And when he had shown them his hands and side and spoken peace, when he had commissioned them to go as the Father has sent me, and when he had spoken to them of the promise of the Holy Spirit, they did open the doors, and as a result of opening those doors, they went out like flaming evangels to the whole world to preach and to demonstrate his message. And the keys of the kingdom, the proclamation, the presence, and the power, it's all there with the living, redeeming Christ. Let us stand in prayer. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, we often feel how weak and inadequate we are in proclaiming thy truth. And yet we bless thee for the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit, who can take the words of truth and brand them into our hearts and bring to us such a love of Jesus as shall cause us to show his presence by the way in which we live 
and shall enable us to be fearless in our proclamation of it, and for that gracious power of the Holy Spirit who guides us to those to whom we should witness and teaches us in that moment what we are to say for Christ, we thank thee for the church, which is to nourish us on the milk and the meat of thy word. We thank thee for faithful ministers and priests who love Jesus Christ and who proclaim his gospel faithfully. We pray thy blessings upon the church universal throughout the world. We pray, O God, that thou wilt send spiritual renewal. And we ask you to begin in us that in this afterglow of Easter, the risen living Christ may walk with us and cause our hearts to be glowing because of his presence. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.